Lord's Day of Advent, we light up all of the candles around the reef, showing that the time of preparation was almost over. The final purple candle reminds us of God's love for his people. Peter was always motivated by God's love, and though God's love for them, God promised them to a seed, a redeemer, a messiah, his son, Jesus Christ. Luke records the coming of the Messiah in chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in his swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people." For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, and you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with an angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary, Joseph, and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the thing that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told to them. As we have seen Buckley confess her faith and confess that she is a sinner in need of God's grace. Let us go together now and make the same confession as we pray the prayer of Advent. The Advent prayer of confession is printed in the bulletin. Our Father, herein is the wonder of wonders. Your eternal, uncreated Son became flesh, the uncreated and the created. Deity and humanity were united in Him. Herein is love. When we could not draw near to you, you drew near to us. You sent him below to raise us above. He was born like us that we might become like him. Herein is power and wisdom. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us that we might become righteous before you. O oh God, let us, like the shepherds, hear the good tidings of great joy and believe, rejoice, praise, and adore. Let us, like Simeon, embrace Jesus in our hearts with undying faith and allegiance. Forgive our sins, lift our eyes to a reconciled Father, and give us a conscience that is at rest in your grace. Enlarge our minds and increase our love through Christ for time and eternity. Amen. Turn to Luke 2, 1 through 20.
looking out across the congregation, I see many of our own folks are traveling this weekend in anticipation of Christmas. And I look out and see folks that are visiting that have traveled here. And I look out and see Carol and John Leak back there. We're glad you're back. You know, you can just stay. You don't have, you don't, you don't have to go back. We're glad you're here. We've missed you. Let's pray together. Before we open to Luke 2 or look at Luke 2, let's pray together and ask his blessings and ask him to teach us. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow before you as your priests. As prophets, we take the gospel out. Each of us takes Christ in our lives out to the community around us, to our families, neighborhoods, our work. We Proclaim God's word, not only by what we say, but what we do. But you've also called us to be priests, and you've called us to come before you as priests. We're a congregation of priests. You've called us to come before you, bringing our neighbors, our friends, our children, our parents before you in prayer. Our Father, it's a joy every week to bow before you as priests and bring Folks from this congregation, our brothers and sisters in Christ before you. We thank you for how you have kept Jim Bennington. and uh, Father, we thank you for how you are getting him settled now in, in one place. And we pray that these days he would look forward with anticipation for you have prepared a place for him. Billy Griggs, we pray for him that you would sustain and strengthen him, strengthen him not only physically, but strengthen him spiritually, that he might look forward with great hope. Father, we pray for Rick Abernathy's mom this morning. We pray that you would restore her health. We pray that you would bless Rick uh, and Kimberly as, as they minister to her and help her. Father, we thank you how you have blessed Rick's father and in his recovery. We thank you for how you blessed Tom Morgan this week. Thank you for the successful surgery and how you're strengthening his body even as we pray right now. We pray for how you kept Grayson Raspberry this week. We ask that you would continue to heal his body and keep him from any complications. Our Father, As we open your word, we know that John Sartell cannot teach us so that it will make any difference in our lives. No man that stands behind this desk can speak so that hearts are changed, so that we grow in Christ. But we've heard you speak in this place. Father, we're not the same people we were. Week after week, you've changed us by the power of your Holy Spirit through your word. So we ask once more this morning that that will take place, that supernatural event where we hear your voice in our hearts. Change us, Father, maybe some of us for the first time. When we leave here in a few minutes, may we know that you have spoken. For the glory of Christ we pray. Amen. Strange title. History. Geography. Angels in Jesus. 
I could title it, Is This Just All a Myth? Is our faith just a myth? Throughout history, the world has demanded that Christianity leave its faith at the door. Sometimes the world seems rather tolerant in this. The world says you can believe whatever. It's all right. Just don't bring it to work with you. You can believe whatever you want. Just don't believe, just don't bring it to the athletic field. You can believe whatever you want. But if you're coming here, leave your faith at the door. Dr. Francis Schaeffer affected my life. The Lord used him to affect my life as he used few men. Schaefer was a Presbyterian minister, theologian, apologist, philosopher. At one time in the 60s and 70s, the world, was, people came from all over the world to gather at his door in Labrie, Switzerland. Now remember where I was when I heard Schaefer speak of Isaac Newton. Newton, a 17th century scientist, mathematician, physicist, astronomer, philosopher, theologian. I said a 17th century scientist. I should have said the 17th century scientist. He's known by many as the father of modern science. His intellect was appalling, was incredible. Isaac Newton, as a scientist, was a devout Christian. Schaefer said this, Sir Isaac Newton never left his faith at the door. He took his Bible, Schaefer said, into the lab, into the observatory, into every scientific experiment. He could not separate his faith from his scientific work. Both were facts. He didn't literally carry his Bible into the lab, but his world and life view. His understanding of Christianity, his understanding of Christ and God being God, went with him wherever he was. It was just as real to Newton as any scientific reality. Eric Little, a Scotsman, represented England in the 1924 Olympics in Paris. A movie was made about him, Chariots of Fire. It premiered in 1981, won the Oscar for the best picture of that year. That would be a good movie to watch, by the way, during this Christmas season. Little was to run the 100-meter race in the Olympics in Paris. But when he arrived, he refused to participate because the heats were on Sunday. And he was a devout Christian. Political and royal leaders of the English team tried to persuade Little to go ahead and run, to set his faith aside. The officials were frustrated and angered because Little dared to involve his faith in his running, dared to involve his faith in the Olympics. They wanted him to leave his faith out of his running, and out of the Olympics. Like Sir Isaac Newton, 
he could not walk into the Olympics and leave his faith at the door. He didn't run in the 100-meter race. Instead, he took another runner's place and ran in the 400 and won the gold medal. In the movie, For Love of the Game, Kevin Costner plays the part of Billy Chappell. He's an all-star baseball pitcher. He's at the end of his career. He's pitching in this movie in what would be his last game. And he's pitching a perfect game. He comes into the ninth inning with a perfect game. The pain in his shoulder because of his age and wear and tear is excruciating. He's not a religious man. But on the mound, he makes a sort of prayer. He said to God, I've never tried to involve you in the trivia of a baseball game. Good, if you could just make this pain go away for a few more pitches, I sure would appreciate it. I've never involved you in my baseball life. But let's be careful of how we blame the world for saying to us or for the world saying, you leave your faith outside this very practical life, wherever it is. You leave your faith outside of work or the athletic field or wherever you are. You can't blame that on the world. As Christians, we go to church. We sing our hymns. We confess our faith. We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That's what we do on Sunday. But then, Monday through Saturday, where's our faith? Too much of the time, We look so much just like the world. Sometimes we've got to ask, is this just a myth? Do I really believe this? Is it true? Is it fact? Do I really believe it's truth and it's fact? The well-known passage before us this morning, most of us know this almost by heart. But this passage from Luke 2 speaks to us of this issue. We sometimes define our world by using the words space, time, history. Space, what do we mean? Space is about geography. We live in a world of oceans and mountains, of continents, a world where we define our location by north and south, east and west, longitude, latitude. Geography comes from the word geo, meaning earth, graphy, meaning description, 
design. The earth has created space that can be graphed. It's real. That's what geography does. Do we say that's space? What about time? Time is about history. History is a record of what takes place in a created space in a definite period of time. When Luke wrote his gospel, when he wrote about the angels, the super, supernatural creatures, when he wrote about Jesus, the Son of God becoming flesh, when he wrote about the incarnation, he set it in the midst. He set this in the midst of space and time. Look at it. First, I just want you to see geography, angels, and Jesus. Look at Luke 2, 1 through 7, one more time. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Mark that. Just put a dot. Syria. All want to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph went up from Galilee to the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. That's geography. In our minds, we can see that on the map. We know where those places were. Verse 7, she gave birth to her firstborn and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. And where did she put him? What was that geographical location? She laid him in a manger. Syria had long been the name of a nation just north of Israel. In Jesus' day, that whole area had become known as Syria. Quirinius was governor there. Everyone would identify. They, they wouldn't say, now, is Syria real? Everyone knew it was real. Joseph traveled from Nazareth, a town in Galilee. He traveled to his ancestral home of Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a village about five miles distant from Jerusalem. Again, if, you, if, if we had lived in that day and someone would have said, Where, where's Joseph? Well, he went, he left Nazareth, he went, he went to Bethlehem. And then, and then Luke gets very exacting and talks about just a small space. Joseph and Mary played their firstborn, placed their firstborn where? In a manger. I grew up hearing a manger. I thought that was a crib. It is a crib in the farmer's use of the word. But that's why we use it that way. A manger is a feed, animal feed trough. The sign of which the angel spoke was not the swaddling clothes. You'll find him wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. The sign was he's going to be in an animal. You'll know it's a baby because he'll be the only one in Bethlehem sleeping in an animal feed trough. Again, this is what we read all through Scripture. These stories that make up this one great story. The great story from Genesis to Revelation. 
These stories, they take place in real space-time history. When J.M. Barry wrote his wonderful tale about Peter Pan, the boy who never grew up, where did Barry put Peter Pan? He lived in Neverland. He put him, he put him in an out-of-the-world place. Everybody knew that that's not real. That's not how Luke writes his gospel. He was born in Bethlehem of Judea. His first bed was an animal feed trough. The gospel takes place in real space. No one can read this and say, well, this is, this is, just, this is just myth. No. Geography, angels, and Jesus. If you had sat down with Luke, by the way, a doctor, an intellectual in his day, he was the one who wrote this, and said, Luke, just isn't this myth? I mean, were there really angels? He would have been appalled at you even asking the question. He said, of course. It happened. Geography, angels, and Jesus. Look at our next. I want you to see. It's very simple this morning. It's not hard. History, angels, and Jesus. In those days, a decree went up from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius. It wasn't. It wasn't the second. It wasn't the third. It was the first. Let's single this out. When Quirinius was governor of Syria, they all went to be registered, each to his own town. This was something that happened all over the empire. What was happening in world history? We've looked at space, geography. Let's look at time. History is a record of what happens in a certain space, a geographical location, in a specific time period. Caesar Augustus, in those days, a decree, a ruling, went out from Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was on the throne in Rome. He ruled an empire. His original name was Octavian. He was the grandnephew of Julius Caesar. After Caesar, Julius Caesar was killed, there was a second triumphant that ruled the empire. It was made up of Lepidus, Mark Antony, of Cleopatra and Antony, Mark Antony, and of Octavian. Octavian defeated Lepidus and Mark Antony, and he became Caesar Augustus. His name was changed. Caesar Augustus. That's who's on the throne. Quirinius was governor of Syria. There was a lot of controversy in the 19th century and 1800. A lot of liberals were saying, well, this isn't right. This isn't true. Because Quirinius wasn't governor of Syria too much later. And in the 20th century, documents were found which confirmed that he was in Syria 16 years before 
that. Here is Caesar Augustus. Here's Quirinius. You don't look at them and say, well, they're myth, aren't they? No, it's set. As we consider the time of his birth, the time in history, think about all that is behind those words. Words of Luke. Augustus was emperor of Rome. What did he have to do with Mary and Joseph? He didn't know them. But if this child, you know, the angel had told Mary this and Joseph that this was to be the Messiah, if this child was going to be the Messiah, he had to be born in Bethlehem. Tyler talked about this on the first Sunday of Advent from the prophet Micah. Micah had said the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Well, they lived in Nazareth. Luke didn't need to say this. He didn't need to explain it. He only had to tell the story. It was there for everyone to see. God is sovereign over history. And can even work in the plans of a pagan king to bring about his will. Caesar thought, very wise thing. We need to have a census in order to determine the amount of taxes. God says, Joseph and Mary need to be in Bethlehem. Luke would have enjoyed reading what Chuck Swindoll, what Charles Swindoll wrote about those words. I'll read it to you every Christmas, and I'll read it again to you next Christmas. It's important for you to know, and it's on your scripture sheet so you can look at it while I read it. Christmas morning, read this with your family. Who could have cared about the birth of a baby while the world was watching Rome in all of her splendor? Bound on the west by the Atlantic, on the east by the Euphrates, on the north by the Rhine and the Danube, on the south by the Sahara Desert. The Roman Empire was as vast as it was vicious. Political intrigue, racial tension, increased immorality. Enormous military might occupied everyone's attention and conversation. Palestine existed under the crush of Rome's heavy boot. All eyes were on Augustus, a cynical Caesar who demanded a census so as to determine a measurement to enlarge taxes. At that time, who was interested in a couple making a long trip south from Nazareth? What could possibly be more important than Caesar's decision in Rome? Who cared about a Jewish baby born in Bethlehem? God did. Without realizing it, mighty Augustus was only an errand boy for the fulfillment of Micah's prediction. A pawn in the hand of Jehovah, a piece of lint on the pages of prophecy. In Galatians 4, 4, this is beautiful. Listen to this. In Galatians 4, 4, Paul writes, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. He could have said, at the right, and you know, in time, God sent forth his son. He could have said God sent forth his son. No, he said in the fullness of time. What did he mean by that? The word there for fullness is the Greek word paroma. It means more than fullness. Paroma means a fullness that is at the bursting point. It refers to a planned fullness. 
The fullness of time means that at the exact moment when God had all of history ready, when history was pregnant, when there's nothing more to be prepared, he sent his son. You see, God had done far more than have Augustus call for a census, for a tax. The Romans, the Roman Empire, had brought what was called the Pax Romana to the world. The Roman peace. You say it was peaceful? Yes. Rome ruled in a way that Greece had not. They ruled with a power and might that Persia had not. And they could be vicious. Rome could be vicious. But there was a peace. In these outer provinces weren't at war. People were, you know, there weren't nations at war. It had all been settled. Rome was ruling. And what Rome said went. They allowed a lot of latitude in the outer provinces. There was a peace, a Pax Romano. Romans had built a road system like the world had never seen. They had a postal system that was the best in the world. Nothing, there was nothing ever like that before this time. Even secular scholars, unbelievers, have observed that without Roman peace, and Roman roads, then the Roman system of communication, the gospel would not have spread near as fast. At the right time, God had history exactly where he wanted it to be. God not only had Mary ready, he had the world ready. Everything was in place. From Augustus making a decree that brought Mary to Bethlehem, to the Roman roads, to the postal system. God had the world ready. In the big picture, what is Luke saying? God was invading space-time history. This is set in space-time history. It's truth. It's fact. There's no myth here. Angels, Jesus and geography. Angels, Jesus in history. And you're saying, all right, John. You hadn't dealt with angels yet. Can it really be? Is this for real? Is this for real? I was listening to a comedian tell the story of angels coming to the shepherds. And it was really quite clever. He dealt with the reality of what it meant to be a shepherd of that day. And they were on their way to Bethlehem. And one of the shepherds says, now wait a minute, guys. Did, did we really see those angels? I mean, you know, what are we doing going to bed? Did, did that really happen? I mean, we were drinking a lot last night. A lot of people don't have trouble with this Jesus being born. They don't believe he's the son of God. They don't believe he did his miracles. It's all right to be born. It's just, uh, you know, what are the angels doing there? 
What about those angels? People, the supernatural is inseparable from space, time, history in the gospel. The angels were indeed supernatural. We don't need to cover over that. Yes, they were from outside of this world. In the incarnation, the Son of God is born supernaturally into this creation. Can you imagine? The angels come. And the shepherds say, you, you can't be here. You, you can't be here. This is a real world in which we live. We're real shepherds. We're working hard out here taking care of the sheep. This is a business. We can't have you coming in here like this. Who said over and over again to me? when I was in college and graduate school, in so many words, this is a real world. God didn't become flesh. Are you kidding? But there we see angels in space, time, history. Think about it. It's rational, folks. The angels had to be there. This was the Son of God coming in the flesh. If there were no angels, we would have wondered why. Why didn't God do something like this? You look at the miracles of the New Testament. He spoke and made blind people see and deaf people hear. What do you expect the Son of God to do? What was it John wrote? He didn't talk about angels. In his story of the nativity, Luke, as we've seen, described it geographically. He described it historically. John described it theologically. Look at John 1.1 in your scripture sheet. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And what happened? Look at verse 14. And the Word became flesh. God became flesh and dwelt among us. John was telling theologically what Luke was describing historically. Well, folks, just as his life, the life of Jesus, had a supernatural beginning, our lives in Christ have a supernatural beginning. You say, well, John, I know my parents. I was born, no, I know mine too. I was born to Preston, Mary Ellen, Sorkin. But look at John 1, 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God who were born, not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. What was it Jesus said to Nicodemus? Nicodemus, 
Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Unless the Holy Spirit of the living God invades your life and changes your heart. So that just as the life of Jesus had a supernatural beginning, the life of every Christian has a supernatural beginning. The Holy Spirit changes our heart. You know what runs parallel? All through my education, when I encountered the liberalism in the church moving away, I'm not talking about a social liberalism. I'm talking about a biblical theological liberalism as, as the church came to the point and said, oh, this is a modern time. We can't have angels. We can't have the Son of God become flesh. Those things really didn't happen. The same church that says that is going to tell you that you don't need to be born. You can't be born again. You don't need to be in the first place. That's what they would say. I can remember a man calling me early in my ministry in Memphis. Seven o'clock one morning. It was on a Monday morning. He had been in church the Sunday, just the day before. Be coming for several Sundays. I'd talked to him. He was coming from a church where he had never heard the gospel, where he had heard that Jesus was really not born of a virgin, that Jesus was not the Son of God, that the miracles weren't real. And so he called me. And he didn't call me to ask me about that. He didn't call me to ask me about was Jesus really the Son of God? You know what he said? He sat down in my den that morning, seven o'clock. And he said, John, what is this business about being born again? Of course, anybody that's going to deny the deity of Christ and God's invasion of this world is not going to talk about the invasion of God in our lives. And I had the joy that morning of sitting down. This man was a banker. He was an older man. He was in his 70s. And for the first time in his life, he heard the gospel. He heard that he was a sinner. He heard that God had come and died for his sin. He heard that he needed to be born again by the Spirit of God. Jesus, people, Jesus did not tell us to leave our supernatural faith parked at the door. First he said, it will be a supernatural faith. And nothing in scripture teaches us to separate the gospel, the supernatural gospel from our everyday lives. What happened at Pentecost? Jesus told the disciples, you stay in Jerusalem. He had everything ready. You stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. Look at Acts 1.8 and we're done. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When the Holy Spirit comes, you're going to take it out in the world. You see it? He didn't say park it at the door. He didn't say be careful what you say out in the world. He said, you take it to the world, even to Fayette County. It's going to begin in Jerusalem, Judea. But it's going to go to Rome, and it's going to go to Alexandria, and it's going to go to the 5th century, and the 10th century, the 15th century, 
is going to go to the 21st century, even to Fayette County. The disciples, what happened when they burst out from Jerusalem after Pentecost? The disciples did not leave their faith in the upper room. When they went into the streets of Jerusalem that day, and they were in the very city that had crucified Jesus. They did not park their faith at the door when they stood before the Sanhedrin. They did not park their faith at the door when they stood before Caesar. Does that mean we stop and pray at the water cooler at work? Does it mean that we talk about Jesus in a football huddle? No, you know better than that. It means that we walk in the spirit of Christ wherever we are. Living out his will every day in our lives. It does mean that our faith is not a myth. Folks, I celebrated in September my 75th anniversary. I'm not middle age anymore. You know, it tickles me to death. Somebody's 55 and they say, I'm middle age. So you passed that when you were 35. One day soon. One day soon my heart will stop beating. One day soon my health will fail. I know that. I pray that I will look forward with anticipation. And I will look forward with anticipation. Because this is not a myth. And I have a place to go. Because this same Jesus who was born in Bethlehem who died for our sins, rose again from the dead. He has prepared a place. Is that myth? No. It's truth. One day, Listen to me. One day, there will be a reckoning. And we'll talk about it for an eternity. And that reckoning will end in glory or in something far worse. And that's not myth. We have a great hymn to sing. Go tell it on the mountain.